0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell.
2: Well, that was fun. Or this is fun. Or not. Okay, this is definitely not fun, no matter how many times I heard commentators last night saying this is fun while their colleagues were grinning, smiling, and at times openly laughing at the sheer joy Of election night And somehow all those happy faces were happy Even when reminding us that in the United States We do not elect presidents By the popular vote No, people's votes don't matter as much As the electoral college does The electoral college will act as if Tens of millions of voters' votes Don't matter As most states give all 100% of their electors To one candidate or the other Even if just under 50% Voted for the other guy The whole thing is influenced by money, money earned through exploitation and domination of others, a pursuit of profit that is destructive to our planet and ourselves, that does not care about its impact on either. A process that institutionalizes and forces and exacerbates racism and sexism for its own benefit. Is it any wonder we get the kinds of politicians and political candidates that we end up with after Election Day, when such a system is the guiding force in our society? You want to know why we end up with such sucky candidates like Donald Trump and Joe Biden running for president? Follow the money right back to all the shortcomings of capitalism. So after another display like last night's, have you considered Marxism? Sure, it's a radical departure from what we've got going for us now. But if you literally considered the radical perspective, as in looking at the roots of our problems today, like many of our guests have pointed to over the past Several years And likely your friends are increasingly pointing to As well, whether they know it or not What you find is a Marxist Criticism A critique of capitalism In other words, this week This is Hell is celebrating democracy In the United States, following up on yesterday's Discussion on anarchism that was censored By Facebook, which I will tell you about In a bit We are moving on to the revolutionary prospects Of Marxism to see if Facebook will Throttle that political discussion as well as today's guest is Hadass Tier, author of *A People's Guide to Capitalism* and *Introduction to Marxist Economics*. Hadass is an activist writer and socialist, a staff writer at Jacobin. Her most recent writing there includes last week's article, "Parenting as a Job During the Pandemic." It's impossible. Follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadass Tier. That's T H I. E-R. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening
0: audience? This week's question from hell is... What happens? Or I guess maybe what happened? And uh, don't tell me because I have no idea what happened last night. Well, you'll be fine. In the words of Barbara Bush, uh, why would I waste my beautiful mind on something (laughs) like that?
2: (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Our new gray on black, this is hell t-shirt. You can check out the new gray on black, this is hell t-shirt. And all our merchandise right now By going to thisishell.com And clicking on support Where you will see all the ways you can contribute To completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support You can leave your answer to this week's question At our Facebook page Facebook.com slash thisishellradio Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter At thisishellradio You can email it to either of us Chuck at com. Alex at this is hell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment of truth, Jeff leans on survivor bias. Yes, as promised, we will also be giving out a new gray on black This Is Hell t shirt to the person who gave us the most accurate response prior to the first vote counts came in yesterday around. 5 p.m. Central Time, but to be honest, we do not know when we will know what happens until, who knows, by the end of the show today, maybe by the time we go to sleep tonight, maybe by the weekend, maybe by Thanksgiving. We really have no clue when we will know what happens, but when we do, whoever answered most accurately will get a new Grey on Black This Is Hell t-shirt, as will the person who simply has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, which again is... What happens And we will be announcing the, This week's winner Our favorite answer To this week's question mail Following Jeff Dorch In the moment of truth On tomorrow's show The future ain't what it used to be And the present Ain't that great either This Is Hell Before we Get to the honor We were given By Facebook yesterday When we were told Our money was no good To them Let me get you caught up On the election With my apologies to Alex. First, like many of you, I stayed up too late last night, drinking too much while I watched grown ass adults tap video screens incessantly, letting their many imaginaries and speculative possibilities and wishful potentialities and what ifs run wild as they reported again and again on how all the polls they diligently obsessed over for the last year were all wrong. Again, And three years from now, they will do it all over, worshipping polls like they are some religious tome brought down from on high to deliver divine truth when all we get is just a bunch of really bad guesses that turn out to be incredibly wrong. As of now, votes are still being counted as we knew they would be, as we are told they would be, as everyone was prepared for them to be. But that is not stopping President Trump from claiming on Twitter that the election is being stolen because, of course he is. We also knew that would happen, too. And we probably figured that Twitter would flag the comment. In fact, Twitter took the bold step of saying Trump's post that they, whoever they are, they are trying to steal the election. We will never let them do it. Votes cannot be cast after the polls are closed. Twitter, bravely, courageously, took the bold step of saying that tweet is potentially misleading. That's some pretty heroic stuff right there. Meanwhile, Facebook clarified Trump's post, claiming they were stealing the election by posting a label saying that ballots could take days or weeks to count, which, again, we all knew already. Sure, Biden's leading in Michigan and Wisconsin, and Trump is leading in Pennsylvania, and if you stare at that screen long enough, the kettle will eventually boil over, I promise. Just keep staring. Last night, we were told if Biden wins Georgia, it's over for Trump. Then we are told if Trump loses Ohio, he's done. Then we are told if Biden wins Pennsylvania, Trump has no path to victory. Next it was if Biden loses both Michigan and Wisconsin, he will lose. Each claim was made with such authority that they were delivered as statements of fact, hooking the viewer in for another 30 minutes to get the next round of poll numbers coming in, which we are told will make all the difference in the world and decide the winner. And every time the newest numbers fail to live up to that promise of ending this freaking nightmare. And if all that hand-wringing isn't enough for you, roam around social media for a bit and see how people are reacting there. And what I found last night was exactly the kind of level-headedness that I expected from social media. For instance, Doug Henwood posted, We are effing doomed. The USA sucks. I mean, both statements are true, but what does that have to do with last night? You could have posted that any day of the year this year. So how was last night make it any different? On social media, people are sharing Trump's statement that he is going to have a big speech this evening for his big win. Meanwhile... CBS News is claiming Biden could clinch a victory around the time Trump is supposed to be giving his victory speech. Others are claiming even if Biden wins, none of this matters as Democrats are not going to win the Senate and Biden will be unable to do anything as the Senate has his hand, ties his hands. Who knew someone as uninspiring as Joe Biden would be unable to deliver the Senate back into Democratic hands? Oh yeah, everybody expected that too. Wait, now the New York Times has the Senate in a tie, so Democrats are suddenly bubbling with hope. Mm, Until they refresh and see what the next numbers say. While all that is happening, remember? How we all knew Trump's hand-picked postmaster general would interfere in the election? Well, that's happening just like we expected too. Breaking news this morning is that the United States Postal Service has failed to meet the deadline set by a U.S. district judge to sweep facilities and immediately deliver remaining mail ballots. As of this week, USPS said there were some 300,000 ballots that lacked a delivery scan and there is now a very good chance that they will not be counted as the Postmaster General has refused to do so. So that's where we are as of now, exactly where we expected to be with polls being wrong, votes still being counted, Trump claiming victory while simultaneously saying his victory is being stolen from him, An indication that tr- indications that Trump may lose, Biden may win, or the vote will be suppressed and the opposite will happen. So exactly where we thought we would be the day after the election. And here on This Is How, we are continuing to celebrate democracy in the United States by considering Marxism. Yesterday, we commemorated Election Day and the greatness of American democracy by discussing anarchism. We figured if everyone is going to be warning us about anarchists and Marxists taking to the streets, we should get to know these people and find out what they're all about. Once we talked with yesterday's guest, Ruth Kinna, author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism, We thought it was an important conversation, as anarchism turns out to be nothing more than challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. So we wanted to share that talk with everyone on that disseminator of free speech and political ideas, Facebook. We thought our discussion was so vital to today's political dialogue that we even decided to boost the post, offering Facebook 25 American dollars. To help spread the word of what anarchism really is. And not understanding it is nothing more than a, a hollow epithet. That's when we were informed by Facebook that, quote, your ad may have been rejected if it mentions politicians, it does not, or sensitive social issues that could influence public opinion, maybe, how people vote. Probably not. It may impact the outcome of an election or pending legislation. Definitely not. Sure, we'd like to think that a conversation explaining anarchism would have an impact on anyone who listens to it. But how might make how might that make them feel about politicians or affect the way they vote? I, I, that's beyond me. Nonetheless. It felt good to be told by Facebook that our discussion on anarchism was verboten. That the content we create is deemed too sensitive for Facebook's audience. It was reassuring to be reminded that Facebook will not allow conversations about alternative political systems. That Facebook wants us all to believe there is no alternative. Facebook, you hate me. You really, really hate me. And I could not be more proud. Thank you. 25 years of working on This Is Hell, it's finally paid off. I finally feel like the whole thing was worthwhile. No, the revolution will not be televised, and you will not find it on Facebook either. But you will find it here, because this is not the media. This is hell coming up on this is Hell, we're f- talking marxism and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what happens as in what happens on election night as in what happened on election night at this point i'm your bitter blind broke gap-toothed radio show live stream and podcast host chuck mertz producing is alex jerry live from the united states where property has more rights than people this is Hell. After what we've been through over the past 24 hours, what we've been through over the last four years, what history has been through over the past couple of centuries, what the planet has been through, have you considered Marxism? Here to help us get a better understanding of Marxism, following another horrible election day, Hadass Tire is author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. Welcome to This is Hell, Hadass
1: Thank you so much, Chuck. It's great to be here on a show called This Is Hell today.
2: (laughs) Exactly. It's perfect, right? Uh, Far too often the name of our show fits with what is happening around us. Hadassah is an activist, writer, and socialist. She's a staff writer at Jacobin. Hadassah's most recent writing includes last week's article, Parenting is a Job During the Pandemic, It's Impossible. You can follow Hadassah on Twitter at HadassTier. That's T H I. E.R. You write that it has become painfully and tragically clear that it is not merely a virus claiming lives. We are also being assailed by a society that has no problem marshalling bombs and fighter jets, but that will not assemble enough ventilators and masks to battle the pandemic. We live in a society in which decades of budget cuts have made a Run on overwhelmed hospitals, inevitable, and which has set countries and states bidding against one another for ventilators on the free market rather than devise centralized plans for their production and distribution. Back in March of last year, we spoke with Lee Phillips and Michal Roswarski, co authors of The People's Republic of Walmart, how the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundations for socialism. Lee and Michal argue that Walmart works on a centralized planning model with control over every aspect of their business through vertical integration and using the profits and wealth generated to change communities to their liking and becoming one of the world's largest corporations within the market. How successful are centralized plans for production and distribution? And what explains this kind of celebration of Walmart's success from centralized planning and yet the denial of centralized planning's success?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first point is that the market has completely and utterly failed to do what its its most basic job, right? That we're told that even if capitalism is a little bit, you know, hairy around the edges, that at least we have a market and it can get us the goods that we need. And we should be grateful for that at the very least. And yet, you know, we're eight months into this pandemic and there are still shortages of, uh, of masks and basic PPEs. And um, you know, it's, this is the basic thing that the market is supposed to be able to do, is supposed to be responsive to, and it's the exact opposite of that. Um, I think, you know, I think that argument around Walmart um, and other corporations is really important because capitalism can be extremely, extremely p- planned. You know, they can plan production, time it to the second to get the most efficient, uh, means of producing, of centralizing, of, um, you know, figuring out very, um, complicated questions of demand and distribution And, you know, Walmart itself is, you know, bigger than some countries entire GDPs. So, you know, absolutely. I think that that makes a case for what's possible. And, um, and there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't on a national and even international scale have centralized planning to get people what we actually need instead of what churns a profit. Um, obviously it's, it's a complicated question of exactly how we get there. And there's debates about that. But I think the question is how to do not, how to do it, not whether to do it. Uh, because I think uh, if this pandemic has exposed anything, it's that we need uh, a different a different means to do things, and we I, I think that the, the big argument against it really isn't about the idea that it's not possible, although that's how it's cloaked but I think what's really behind it is that um, is an argument against centralized you know democratic planning for the sake of human needs as opposed to for the sake of profits because When things are highly centralized for the sake of producing a profit, then it's A-OK under capitalism. Um, But that, you know, that's what's failed us uh, thus far.
2: You write that at the first sign of coronavirus-related stock market trouble, the richest country in the world quickly mobilized trillions of dollars to prop up financial capital. But the government did nothing to make testing widely available. The United States literally addressed profits instead of people, coming to the aid of profits instead of to the aid of people. To what extent, though, is that bipartisan? While we do not know how a President Biden would have actually reacted in real time, to what degree does the way that capitalism is applied, supported, or prioritized vary from the Democratic to the Republican Party? Do you believe the problems in responding to the pandemic were shortcomings of capitalism or specifically shortcomings of Republican conservative political ideology
1: well you know I, the the short answer is that I think it's capitalism I think the slightly lar- longer answer is that of course you know the Republicans are insane <laughs> um, and having Donald Trump at the helm is the absolutely worst possible person that you would want at the helm of uh, a, a pandemic and a and a deep recession, like we're, we're in the midst of, um, there's no doubt that Trump and the Republicans have made this worse that they're, you know, insisting on, um, sending people back to work as opposed to giving people enough economic relief so that they could stay home. Um, it's been, you know, certifiably homicidal behavior in my opinion. Um, and obviously not just my opinion, but, you know, Two hundred thousand plus deaths in the U.S. I think attest to this. I think it could have been, even within the context of capitalism, uh, managed a bit better than it was. That said, yeah, the problem is much deeper and goes back much further. I mean, the the state of our healthcare system is an absolute shambles, and it just couldn't handle a pandemic. And that has been a bipartisan attack on public health care, uh, the privatization of hospitals. Um, obviously we have a healthcare system that's set up for profits as opposed to uh, as opposed to health and, and people's well being. We have now, you know, millions of people being kicked off of their employer sponsored health insurance that we were supposed to, that we were told that everybody wants to stay on. Uh, well as it turns out when there's mass unemployment there's mass you know, health, lack of health insurance. Um, we have, you know, in, in New York, they did this study a month or two ago, I can't remember, in the New York Times, it showed that the hospitals in Manhattan that are private hospitals that are well-endowed, that serve rich clientele, uh, are th- had three times higher uh, survival rates for COVID than the public hospitals in uh, Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx. Um, people are literally dying because of poverty. That's the reality of it. That they, if you can't afford to go to a private hospital in Manhattan, um, then you're left unattended uh, at understaffed hospitals in in, uh, in the boroughs. So, you know, it's the 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 problem of like I was saying before about the market that we had bidding wars among states for masks and ventilators. Um, You know, this is the way that that the market is supposed to function. Uh, I live in New York City where we have a liberal mayor and a liberal governor, de Blasio and and Cuomo. And on the one hand, you know, you could look at Cuomo when the alternative is Trump. And you could say, well, at least, you know, he's saying, you know, he's saying a few things that have something to do with science as opposed to, you know, uh, or rambling on a anti-mask tirade um, is what we're, we're getting from Trump. But here in New York, you know, o- over one out of 400 residents have died of COVID. It's just astounding. And it's completely been botched by the Democratic mayor and governor where they refused to shut down the schools in time when COVID was first spreading through the city that cost us at least thousands of lives. Um, They eventually did shut down the city, but what was considered um, essential work was still included things like building building luxury condos. They never fully shut down the city. And then of course, they tried to um, pry things open as soon as possible. And now de Blasio has insisted on reopening our schools, despite. The fact that our schools have been underfunded for decades and are in no position to provide the kind of infrastructure, uh, space, ventilation, uh, resource, you know, um, equipment, masks, et cetera, uh, that would be needed for schools to be to be safe. So, you know, this is this has been a bipartisan uh, crisis in the making, and you know trump is and the republicans are, represent the worst of it but um but i think even with a president biden we're going to have uh at the best case scenario if he does eke out a victory um we're going to have a very uh hard fight left uh to fight on this
2: bipartisan because no matter who the elected official is no matter what party they're from no matter if it's Mayor de Blasio or Governor Cuomo or Governor Pritzker or Mayor Lightfoot, they all have to consider, they're all forced to be in a position under capitalism where they have to consider profits versus people. They have to consider how can we satisfy both the market and also how can we satisfy the needs of the people. So why didn't the market work? Why wasn't the market the cost effective and efficient responder to the pandemic, to crisis that those who support the market have been telling us it would be. I mean, that was, it would seem like the whole time the Trump administration in their slow response, it was because they were trying to figure out how can we make the market respond to this and not have a state response. So why didn't the market work? Why didn't it provide the cost efficient and very effective response to a crisis that it was supposed to be giving us?
1: Right. Well, in, in one sense it worked, which is that because the purpose of a market is to make money. And I think that's that's the problem right there. Um, the purpose of the market is never to provide. And that's the main, um, you know, ideological lie of capitalism, that the market is there to provide for our needs. And actually, the market is there to provide profits. So the cost of masks, I think, um, what's the word when it Times seven septupled. I don't know. Um, the price of masks just skyrocketed um, at the start of uh, of N95 masks at the start of the crisis. Um, so some people got very rich. Um, you know the fact that there were bidding wars um, for things like ventilators that should be absolutely illegal. <laughs> you know it's like people's lives depend on them, and yet you know you had states bidding against each other, because that's the way the market works. Who can pay the most? You know, when you, like, if you think about the last crisis that we had the great recession 10 years ago, that was a crisis that began in the housing market. And that is the problem right there. Why is there a housing market as opposed to housing for people to live in? Because what the market understands is a thing that capitalists called effective demand which is not demand as in who needs it, but effective demand as in who can pay for it. Um, and that's the, that's the critical difference. So the, the, the housing market collapsed because of the inability of people to pay the you know, rising mortgage costs. Um, and um, you know, the market for, for PPE and equipment and so on, um, could only work so far as you know it could be afforded, and I think there there is also another thing happening as well, which is that we've had decades of free market policies, um, neoliberalism as it, it's often called, where you know jobs, manufacturing jobs, have been outsourced around the world in order to chase the cheapest possible labor. Because again, that's the goal of a market is to produce as cheaply as possible and to sell uh, as much as possible. So, you know, manufacturing jobs have, uh, you know, s- been been outsourced around the world. Um, and it just simply wasn't possible to produce ventilators in the US. Um, it had to be assembled elsewhere and, and imported, um, which there were many problems with that first that everyone else was trying to get them to but also that there were problems with international shipping because of the pandemic um, you know the same the same goes for masks most masks are are not produced in the u.s they're produced outside of the u.s um, so this is like corporate globalization coming home to roost um, uh, the the complete failure of the market to do what it's ostensibly meant to do
2: You write that contrary to what we are taught, the economic system of capitalism is intimately connected to society's greatest political challenges of war, health, and health care, climate change, and oppression. Millennials turn towards socialism signals an attempt to answer these questions. A new generation is investigating anti-capitalist theories and ideas which are no longer tainted with the false socialisms of the totalitarian states of the past." Unfortunately, they're very tainted with that when it comes to right-wing spin that you see on places like Fox News, but false socialisms. Has there been a true socialism yet? And how difficult is it for socialism, for Marxism, to shed the problems that are often linked to it when it comes to the images of the Soviet Union?
1: Well, so so no, I think that there has not been... A socialist model, although there 's been glimpses of it here and there when there's been um, struggles for um, a different kind of society, um, but ultimately you know it is going to require upheavals and overturning of entire economic systems um, that are is going to have to spread beyond a single country or a single struggle, uh, and that is a long haul project so um, you know that said capitalism as a system has only existed you know for a relatively short amount of time in the in the span of human history like the example i use in my book is that if you compress all of human history into a 24 hour period then capitalism would represent the last 3 minutes of human history um you know of course it's uh it doesn't feel like it's it's quick but um but it, it's just to say that it is, uh, it is a historical moment. It is a man-made system, and it is possible to overturn that system. And the fact that we haven't gotten there yet doesn't mean that we can't get there. Um, in terms of the, the model of the Soviet Union, you know, I think that the point that I was making in that passage that you were reading is that I think for, you know, for people in, in my generation, I'm in, I'm in my mid-40s, you know, we certainly grew up with, the Soviet Union as a kind of communist boogeyman um, for at least the, the first part of my childhood but um you know that's not the case for younger generations coming in and um you know I think it has less and less of a hold on public opinion and I think the fact that you had you know some a self described socialist Bernie Sanders get as far as he did uh, not only once but twice in um you know, the 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 democratic primaries um, for president is is a huge indication of that. I mean, literally, uh, tens of millions of people look to uh, outspoken, self-described socialist, and you know, Bernie went on Fox itself, you know, the bastion of anti-communism, um, and actually was able to turn that audience. Um, in his favor when he talked about what do socialist principles actually mean? Like there was actually, a, um, uh, Fox did this bit, uh, I think it was yesterday where they were analyzing voter turnout uh, figures and they had all these uh, polls of uh, voters around questions of things like universal health care, which they found the majority of people are in favor of um, of course, you know, a lot of people on the left already know that a majority of people are in favor of a national healthcare system. But, you know, here Fox had to spit out those numbers themselves and they had a few different similar polls like that. Because the reality is is that the actual ideas of socialism, I think, make very uh, good common sense to a lot of people. And the failure of, you know, the, the liberal... Um, you know, the center left and the Democrats, et cetera, is, is really that they're not offering a real alternative. You know, the fact that, that this presidential election is so close uh, actually has more to do with the failure of the Democrats to provide an alternative than it is the saliency of um, Trump and the, and the Republican Party's ideas.
2: You write that at its core, capitalism was defined by Marx as a social relation of production. He meant that profits are not the result of good accounting or the inventive ideas of the super rich, but are instead the outcome of an exploitative relationship between two classes of people, bosses and workers. To Marx, is success not earned under capitalism? And and how much is that belief a threat to capitalism, that any success that is achieved is not earned. Is it only earned? Is that kind of success from capitalism only earned from exploitation and domination?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, are there like occasionally very inventive ideas or some marketing genius um, to make iPhones look, you know, really nice and flashier than? other smartphones, et cetera, like of course there, there, there are those elements of um, ingenuity and marketing skills, et cetera, um, and that's fine. But that plays a relatively minor role. I mean, if you think about the breakdown of wealth in this country, it's absolutely phenomenal. The top 1% of the population owns more than a third of the wealth in this country. That there's no way that that could be proportional to, you know, marketing genius um, or an inventive idea. The bottom 50% of society, the bottom half of society in terms of um, wealth distribution, shares 1% of society's wealth among us. We're literally scraping at the bottom of the barrel, sharing the crumbs at the bottom of the barrel. Um, that that that's not just an exaggeration, but that's actually literally what happening. What's happening? Um, you know, if you think about the, again, like this pandemic, which exposes so much about capitalism. You know, during the course of this pandemic, the 400 richest America Americans um, saw their wealth. Increase by 240 billion dollars. You know that's at a time when we saw mass unemployment skyrocket. That's an, at a time when tens of millions of dollars—no, tens of millions of people—are facing, you know, the prospect of eviction and homelessness. Um, that, you know, but if you think about who is it that's doing the essential work and the critical work during this pandemic. It's not Jeff Bezos, it's the actual, you know, Amazon workers that are doing the logistics works that are doing the, the packing and the driving and the delivering that are risking uh, their health and their lives um, and in order to get things out to people uh, that need them. You think about the work that's being done by, by nurses and by teachers you know, you would if, if it was a matter. If we if we truly lived in you know a society that um, that rewarded um, you know that rewarded uh, behavior that rewarded uh, um, you know people's uh, risks and uh, contributions, then absolutely we would be paying way more for nurses than, um, than, than Jeff Bezos makes in a single day. Um, But that's, um, you know, that's not actually how capitalism works, obviously.
2: You write that this social order of haves and have nots is neither natural, nor timeless. In fact, the precondition of the early development of capitalism was the violent expropriation of the masses of people from their land in order to create the conditions in which capitalism could develop and flourish. And you then quote Karl Marx, writing, The expropriation of the agricultural producer of the peasant from the soil is the basis of the whole process. This great expropriation, as it's known, keeps coming up on our show over and over again. How much is that expropriation erased from history? To what extent does capitalism depend on a lack of knowledge of this expropriation for its sustainability? Is capitalism too often above criticism because of a lack of public awareness of the great
1: expropriation. Yeah. I mean, I think um, that definitely is the the cloak and mystique of capitalism, that it's just this um, timeless system, that it is how humans kind of naturally operate and are naturally organized ourselves into a hierarchy because it's kind of like built into our bones or it 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 took place gradually over time where some people just, you know, like you were saying before the ingenuity or they they saved up uh, over the course of however long. And, um, you know, that's how we have this system of haves and have nots. And that's absolutely a lie. And it's something that, uh, like you said, this history is not well known. Um, You know, the whole, concept of us having to go into work because we don't have a choice but to earn a wage is based on the fact that we don't have a means to produce our own necessities and our own um, means of sustaining ourselves and our families. If we had the means to do that, then we would actually have a choice about whether we wanted to um, go into work for somebody else or work for ourselves. But we don't have access to what Marx calls the means of production. You know, we don't have the land, the factories, the mass tools, um, you know, the, the, uh, the capital really necessary to produce the things that we need. Um, and that was a historical process. It didn't just happen uh, naturally, it didn't just exist always. Um, that was a violent uh, process of expropriation, where masses of people were, were, were v- removed from their land um, by using violence, using laws, using um, grotesque uh, means of disciplining uh, a new landless class, you know, branding people, mutilating people, um, in some cases, killing people for just for being, you know, vagabonds for refusing for being idle for not uh, taking up work. Um, this was a an extremely, um, it was, a, it was a long process, and it was a violent process. Um, and it, it, it has gotten us to the point where we do where we are split up into like the Jeff Bezos of the world and the Amazon workers of the world um, where we don't, you know, all have an equal opportunity from birth um, to say, well, what, what do you, do you want to be, you know, somebody who produces for yourself or somebody who produces for somebody, for somebody else? That's not um, a choice that most of us have.
2: You, we are speaking with Hadass Teer. She is author of a people's guide to capitalism and introduction to Marxist economics. Follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadass Teer. That's T H I. E-R, you write these same processes of wealth accumu- accumulation within capitalism necessarily lead to contradictions that threaten the very profits that capitalists seek. Every contradiction for capitalism is both a great hazard for our lives, to our lives, since we are made to pay the price, and also an important crack in the system. So how does the very wealth accumulation that capitalism insists upon, how does that threaten the profits that it focuses on?
1: Well, so, so there's a lot of contradictions built into that process that Marx um, talks about and all of them, you know, so basically he makes a point that capitalism is built on contradictions. I mean, First of all, it's the contradiction that we were talking about earlier about the markets, for instance, the fact that capitalism produces for profit, not for need, um, that creates a h- huge um, opening uh, possibilities for contradictions, like um, like the housing market that, uh, that I mentioned, that um, as soon as you separate demand from, what people actually need, uh, then, you, then you open yourself up to a lot of um, uh, a lot of problems for how that actually plays out. Um, we have a system where production and the expansion of profits can go on, um, you know, times infinity. Like things could always grow, and and capitalism has a tendency to constantly grow and to push. Uh, to produce more and more because each capitalist is has to um, function on their own behalf. You know, they each have to produce more and more efficiently in order to get more market share. And that's not coordinated among the entire capitalist class. And that's, that's really the difference between like Walmart on a small scale, like you talked about before, uh, not on a small scale, on an individual scale versus capital Uh, more collectively is that Walmart can be the most planned possible centralized possible uh, system within its own, um, you know, pursuit of profit, but it can't do that alongside of other companies because that's the opposite of how capitalism runs it's in competition with other companies. so what that means is that with every company working to just increase their own profit, it's completely unplanned. It sets up capitalism for the possibility of just tremendous crises where um, they're, you know, companies don't get together and decide, okay, well, how many houses do we actually need? How many cars are actually needed? Who's gonna produce what? Okay, let's split it up and let's get, get it done. Um, obviously that's not how it happens. Uh, there's a mad race to produce more and more at the same time that there's not a mad race for our wages to increase more and more. And so there's, you know, the the demand at least on the part of consumers, um, you know never is able to keep up with the um, growth of supply in terms of uh, what's being produced Now, companies can create demand for each other because when, you know, rubber companies or whatever produce rubber for tires and tires, car manufacturers need those tires. So they can kind of like, you know, feed each other's demand but, but ultimately there's, there's also a, a gap there between um, how much is produced and how quickly and how much, you know, demand from and consumption can keep up with that. Um, there's anyway, so there's, there's a lot of different, um, contradictions. There's, um, you know, one of the things that Marx talked about is that over the course of, of, of time in every industry, there's a, um, tendency to use more and more labor saving technology and less and less labor to produce goods. And that is a cost saving, you know, short-term cost saving for the capitalists. Uh, but, in the long term, um, it actually drives down value and prices of of the commodities that it produces um, and that's you know the short term gains that each capitalist is um, driven by versus the long term health um, economic health of 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 the system and of industries within that um, is another major contradiction so you know, We see those playing out in, in lots of different ways different, at different moments. It's not like a cookie cutter blueprint of how it all plays out. Um, but I think the main point is that Marx was saying that the system is rife with contradictions. Um, we're made to pay for those contradictions at the same time that it does open up a window for us to, to organize um, and to, to put forward a different kind of vision and a different kind of alternative.
2: Because those contradictions are its vulnerabilities. You also write that workers have been effectively divided through the manipulation of racist, sexist, and nationalist ideas. In the United States, racism has been the most important tool in protecting the status quo from a united working class with its most recent grotesque chapter manifesting itself in the Trump era. Are racist, sexist, and nationalists expressing that racism, sexism, and nationalism to protect capitalism, and if so, how do we understand differently those who are outwardly expressing racist, sexist, and nationalist messages, those who are protesting at state capitals while carrying automatic rifles, how, how do we understand them differently when we view them as literally voicing their support for capitalism through their racist, sexist, and nationalist tropes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that pro- for for most people who, you know, gun-wielding protesters, um, you know, or the the Proud Boys and, um, you know, vigilantes, um, some of the nastiest kind of underbelly of racist America that we've been privy to, um, that of course existed before Trump, but has, you know, gained a lot of visibility and confidence. Um, during the Trump era, I think for most of those people, they don't see it as trying to prop up capitalism and probably a lot of those people um, are, you know, very open and susceptible to um, the kind of right-wing populism that, you know, somebody like Trump really, Kind of rode in on, you know, that he uh, put himself forward as an outsider in 2016. That he was going to drain the swamp, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that uh, for for a lot of people um, who are who are facing various aspects of this crisis um, that are, um, you know, are, and are looking for for answers. Um, you know, what's been on, what's been, you know, provided, um, in terms of mainstream discussion has been wholly insufficient. And so people have been susceptible to the worst kind of right-wing, uh, scapegoating, um, you know, racist, uh, and misogynistic ideas. Um, you know, it's true that those ideas do help to prop up the system, um, and they divert attention from, you know, where the real uh, divide is in society between, you know, the one percent and and uh, and the rest of us, um, between the haves and have-nots. But I think that it's it's kind of more of a manipulation than it is those people, um, you know, actively wanting to support the status quo. Um, you know, and the fact that that, that, you know, that they've been open to that manipulation is something that I think the left needs to really grapple with um, in terms of what kind of an alternative um, the left puts forward. I mean, it's like all these, the fact that you could, you know, I, I would never have predicted that w- the, something like wearing masks would become a culture war, you know, but the fact that um, people were expected to stay at home indefinitely without having the kind of economic and social supports that they needed left a lot of people vulnerable to that argument, you know? Um, and I think that that's kind of the, the, the problem that we need to, to investigate and, and address.
2: Do you think then that pursuing... Challenging inequality can lead to solidarity, even with people who at this moment might be attracted to groups like the Proud Boys. Is, is, the overwhel- is the overarching theme to all of the protests that we have seen going back to Seattle in 1999, but all of the protests that we have seen, is that overarching theme uh, inequality. And can that inequality, whether you're on the right or the left, bring about solidarity?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, I think that that's really central. I think that, um, you know, there's a couple of things. One is that when you address the actual foundations of inequality, that's when you have the basis on which to um, to actually move forward. When, you know, it's like people are, people are much more open to um, racist scapegoating and anti-immigrant tropes and so on uh, when jobs are disappearing than they are when, when they're not. Um, you know, and, and I think the other aspect of it is that that struggle itself can help to unite people. Um, you know, I think we really have to look at the role of unions and the role of the labor movement um, and how they can take a lead in, uh, in actually um, you know, putting forward an alternative, like framing a different kind of a vision, and 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 how to fight for that. Um, you know, even though I think that I think that that would both be the the way for the the unions to grow in this country. You know, from a historic from historic lows, um, but even at their at the numbers that they represent right now, if the labor movement and, um, you know, the biggest unions that do have access to, you know, resources and structures and so on, if they put forward, you know, a very confident and aggressive, um, you know, program for a Green New Deal, um, you know, that, that, or, you know, on and, and any number of these issues actually put forward um, an economic plan that really addresses inequality that, that actually could help, um, to provide an alternative for people, um, uh, to, to, to look to.
2: One last question for you, Hadass. We have been speaking with Hadas Teer, author of A People's Guide to Capitalism and Introduction to Marxist Economics. Hadass is an activist, writer, and so- socialist. She is Hadas is a staff writer at Jacobin Hadass' most recent writing there Includes last week's article Parenting is a job during the pandemic It's impossible You can follow Hadas on Twitter at Hadas Tier, That's T-H-I-E-R Our final question for all of our guests Hadas, is what we call The question from hell The question we hate to ask You might hate to answer Or our audience is going to hate your response What was worse for the victims Of the pandemic here in the United States? Was it Trump's response or capitalism's insistence on the pursuit of profit? What was more problematic? What do you think led to more deaths? The presidency of Donald Trump or capitalism?
1: Hmm. See why that's a question from hell. Um, (laughs) So we call it a a, a rock in a hard place. Exactly. Um, Well, I think, you know... um, Trump is a product of capitalism, and he's a grotesque product of capitalism. But he's a product of capitalism. There is no other uh, way to explain uh, both his, you know, how he amassed his uh, wealth, and how it is that people with that kind of wealth are the people that find themselves, you know, at the at the top of society with not just economic but also political power. Um, that is very much a product of capitalism. So, you know, I think the answer is capitalism because it's it's because it's both, and because Trump um, is also a product of of that capitalist system. We have, you know, a system that w- way before you know Trump set foot in the White House left left us open and susceptible to you know the growth of these kind of viruses of zoonotic diseases because of agribusiness um, and. Um, factory farming um, that let us that made us susceptible to a healthcare system that is dysfunctional and that can't effectively operate um, in in the best of times, let alone in the worst of times. Um, you know, a system where uh, people are punished for poverty with much higher mortality rates, um, both in and out of the hospitals. Um, you know, this is a system that has uh, has opened us up to this. Um, and it's also exposed us to, um, you know, somebody like, like Donald Trump um, uh, and his really, I think, homicidal uh, policies and and neglect uh, in terms of handling this pandemic.
2: We have been speaking with Hadass author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics. And I just want to point out something that you actually point out in your book that often people can be, people who are interested in alternative economic theories, they can be intimidated by Marx and by his writing. And your book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics, for those who either haven't read Marx or those who are reading Marx and they want to understand it better, they want to have a conversation, if you will, about Marxist economics, this is a great place to start. Again, it's Sadas Thir, and she is author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics. It's a really fantastic book, and you should all go check it out. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Hadass.
1: Thank you so much, Chuck. It was great talking.
2: All right. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. God, I love that tagline, and I want to thank, yet again, Chris Bigosinski for coming up with that about 20 years ago. Producing this week's, or today's show, is Alex Jerry. This week's Question from Hell is, what happens? The person with our favorite answer to this week's Question from Hell wins... Our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com. And when you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have it in by the end of tomorrow's show. Alex, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell.
0: This week's question from hell is, what happens slash what happened? <laughs> uh, what happened in the election? And, uh, okay uh spencer n says i think dems win back pennsylvania and michigan but only one of wisconsin or north carolina not both leading to very narrow biden win that takes a week to establish because of delayed voting counting and gop rat effery i'm saving myself an edit there i don't think they really want to stay in charge though they'll hand it off to biden eventually or i could be completely wrong and trump could lose handily but one thing's (laughs) for certain it doesn't matter because this is hell (laughs) what happened what happens Andrew S. says, the masses rejoice as civility returns to the discourse. <laughs> Marco G. says, violence in Christmas music, mass hysteria, Pitbull releases a new song. Yeah, just as long as there isn't Christmas music, I'm fine with all the rest of that. Uh, Lorna says, a surprise twist, writing candidate Vermin Supreme wins and everyone <laughs> actually does get a pony. <laughs> and finally, last one, Eric T. says, my beer fridge empties. <laughs> so, Alex, who
2: is on tomorrow's show? Well, first of all, what did you do yesterday instead of watching election
0: returns? Uh, I got high on a uh, red Jean Wolfe's book of the new Sun for the third time. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you like that? Wonderful. Film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, tomorrow, and I'm really excited about this. Uh, Zofia Malitz, uh, a national councilwoman for the Polish left-wing political party Razem, will be on to talk about the Razem statement, Our Bodies, Our Lives, Our Country, The World. Uh, in defiance of the Polish abortion ban, which uh, just actually got paused for a couple days ago. So, yeah, that was a big victory, hopefully, for them. And so we'll be talking with Zofia uh, live. I think she's actually in Sweden. But we'll be talking with her live on the show tomorrow.
2: Of course, we'll also have the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin this week. Jeff leans on survivor bias. Thanks everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise like the whole new gray-on-black line of stuff like trucker's caps and face masks, T-shirts and tote bags. Thanks to Jem. S and Alexander M for showing their support at thisishell.com Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast which is posted shortly after our live stream I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing today's show Alex Jerry thanks to Hadass Tier. thanks to Alex Jerry with my most sincere apologies yes I am a white dude but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor